You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Hey, uh, we've been uh, walking through a series called To Do, finding the meaning behind your work. And the reason is that uh, we've been saying that you will spend on average 90,000 hours at work in a lifetime. And if that's the case, what we've been asking is that uh, could rediscovering that your work uh, is something more than a job, but a calling be the actual means to finding greater significance, greater purpose, greater satisfaction in what you're doing day to day, nine to five. And not only that, but if we spend so much time uh, at work, could it actually be the means by which God carries out his mission in the world and your life? And so, so far we've learned that work's a good thing. It was created by God. It's startling that work was a part of paradise. There was a good thing. And then this funny thing called sin enters the world. And as a result, work becomes frustrating. It becomes painful both at a corporate level, that you're always envisioning far more than you can actually achieve, but at the individual level, that sin causes us to take a good thing, make it an ultimate thing, create an idol out of work, and so now work becomes potentially the basis for your identity and your meaning and your purpose in life. And then, not to fear, out of that we saw that uh, there is a hope that we discovered last week, and that is the gospel story, the story underneath every story, and it gives and it can give you a new perspective on your work. Uh, It can give you the ability to see the bottom line, so to speak, in your own life, but in everyone else's life. And so you're always asking of yourself and of your workplace, what's the story beneath the story? And so if we've got this new perspective in light of all of that, where we've come from tonight, if knowing the story beneath the story is one thing, how then does that affect our practices for work? What does it mean for us to take that faith into the workplace? Uh, How do we work out the practices of our faith at work? Uh, Let's have a look at James uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Again, because we're looking at this topically, we touch over some of these passages, but we're trying to get a helicopter view of the Bible here. And what I'm seeing first and foremost is that the practice of faith at work is like a tightrope. I don't know if you've seen this daredevil dude that's going to walk across the Grand Canyon. What is it? Is it, to, is it to today American time? So uh, basically this guy, I'm, I can't remember his name. I think it's Nick, Nick Walenda. He's going to walk one and a half kilometers across this wire stretching 500 meters above the Grand Canyon, uh, above the Colorado River below, without a safety harness. Now, there's a man of faith. And the, the thing that interested me about how he was going to do this, particularly without a safety harness, is he has this uh, massive pole-type attachment. You've seen how tightrope workers have this massive pole. And, and that's, that's what gives him the balance in order to be able to walk across this tightrope for something like... 500 meters in length from rim to rim and so in other words in order to walk that balance in order to walk that line from one side to the other there needs to be a weightiness there needs to be a heaviness beyond himself in order to keep him balanced and centered and so what i want to get at tonight is that you see church can be a funny thing there are lots of different ways that we have approached 
taking our faith in our work? Is it on one side of the equation, on one side of the tightrope, is taking our faith in our work being the sort of milk stand, overtly evangelistic, you come to Jesus or you're going to hell, don't go to Friday night drinks because you're going to hell type stuff, or is it, is it the quiet, subtle stuff that if I just... If I just work really well and diligently, then people will guess that I'm a Christian. And which, which way is it? Which, which side do we go? Because there's always two sides that we can drift to. And unless there is a weightiness, if, unless that you spiritually, unless you, with that story beneath the story, have one of those poles that is, that is weightier and beyond yourself, you'll drift off to either side. And so what, what does that pole look like? Here, here it is. The first one that we learn from this passage and the general themes of what James was getting at tonight is that, the, that God saves the world from what it could be. You have to bear with me. I'll call this the piñata principle. We'll get to, get to that a bit later on. Um, have you guys noticed how many shops around the place these days are doing the social justice thing? Like I'm in the body shop the other day, shopping for Kristen, of course. And uh, I'm there at the counter, and the, and the girl, they're, they're supporting uh, orphanages in Indonesia. And uh, you can even go to Grilled up in Crow's Nest now, and uh, they're doing social justice stuff too, right? Uh, so they're, you can, they're helping out their local community. So the hamburger joint is now doing the social justice thing. And I've been thinking, why is it that these organisations, which I'm pretty sure are not Christian, are, are doing better deeds than most churches that we know around the world? How do we reconcile that? I mean, we could take two views of that, of their work. We could say, oh, they're not Christian. That doesn't count. You know, they don't know why they're doing it. They're just doing it to feel good. It doesn't count. Or whether it's the right motive or not, here's the question. What would the world be like if they weren't doing that sort of work? I mean, would the world be better off or would it be worse off? Verses 16 to 17 say, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, what James is saying here is that the good things are the God things. The good things are the God things. The Bible says, if it's good, it's God. And whether that work is coming from a Christian or not, it doesn't matter. If it's good, we know where its source is. Even if the person, grilled, body shop, doesn't know where it's coming from. Now, think about this in a whole other range in your life. What about the wonderful uh, maestro-esque atheist pianist that when they play a piano concerto, they do it so sweetly that you think for that instant that you're just listening to a slice of heaven. What about your unbelieving math teacher? who helped you get the marks to nail your HSC and now hold the job that you do? Uh, what of the auntie in your family who's done a lifetime of good deeds, but whenever it comes to the conversation of Jesus Christ, she's totally against it? What, what, do, we, what do we do with this? How do we reconcile with this, what we've been learning? The work's a good thing, and, and it's through our work as Christian that God blesses the world around us. So how do we reconcile that? And here's, here's the point. Here's the different slant that we need to get to this whole series. Don't just think that the, the good work or the God work, for that matter, is reserved for the Christians only. Psalm 147 
Verse 13 gives us a fascinating insight as to why it says here, For he strengthens the bars of your gates, and he blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. I mean, what it's saying there is that every good thing in the creation God does, and he loves every good thing in the creation, whether they believe in him or not. And so Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, all our work in the field, in the garden, in the city, in the home, in struggle and in government, to what does it all amount to before God except child's play? By means of which God is pleased to give gifts in the field and at home and everywhere. These are the masks of our Lord God behind which he wants to be hidden and to do all things. Can you see what Luther's saying? You know, when, when you go, when, and if you've ever seen one do this, but you see the, the milk farmer milking the cows, that's God milking the teats. Okay? When you, when you see the farmer turning the soil and getting his hand sort of halfway down a cow's butt for whatever reason that you've got to do that, I'm not a farmer. That's God with his hand down the cow's butt. If, if you see the baker baking the bread, that's God baking the bread. When you see the truck driver, singlet and all, driving down the Pacific Highway, transporting the bread and the milk, that's God transporting the milk. You get, you get the picture? God, God, dis, God disguises himself. He disguises himself in, in, in the milker and the farmer and the baker. All of this is happening so you can be provided for and cared for. Are you seeing this? That God is disguising himself through other people's work. More importantly, God is loving you through other people's work. And even when, wait for it, even, even when they're not a Christian. Even when they don't believe in him, God blesses us through them. And that means at some level, whether it's conscious, whether it's unconscious, everyone in the world participates in God's work. And that's what the theologians call common grace. It's, it's the doctrine that, 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 that the James passage, Psalm 147, uh, all, all come together to paint a picture for us here that we see throughout the scriptures and throughout the life experiences around us that God makes his presence known to the world, not through writing his name on the sky, or not from dropping Big Macs from the sky so that you can be sustained. I'm not sure if that would sustain us, but you get the picture. It drop, not by dropping food by parachutes, but by blessing all people through every act of wisdom and every act of beauty and every act of kindness and every act of justice, even if it's coming from the body shop. Whether or not it's from a Christian or not, that's why I call it the pinata principle. You see, I, I, I've got an Italian auntie, so uh, it's big. it was a big thing in my family to uh, have a Christmas piñata. And a piñata is when you get this paper mache little thing. It was this little lamb that she would always make uh, out of a balloon animal. You paper mache it and you stuff the thing full of lollies and full of sweets. And we would go and hang this uh, piñata, this paper mache up on the clothesline at my nan's place and uh, then you would blindfold one of us kids and you would spin us around about 15 times and you would hand them a giant rod, a big metal stick and everyone would run for their lives because you've got this dizzy nine-year-old starting to swing this stick around the place and they don't know where they're going and they're blindfolded 
And the whole objective is that they're supposed to find the piñata with the rod. And if, if they hit it, they keep hitting it hard enough and hard enough and hard enough until the thing busts open. And as a result, all the lollies and all the blessings of that piñata just explode all over the backyard. And all the other kids run for it and grab all the lollies and off the ground. I guess the point is your Romans... Romans 1 has a really interesting insight when it says that people that don't believe in God are actually suppressing the truth of God through their unrighteousness. In other words, you've got to work at ignoring God. And, and that you can be a person who doesn't believe in God, you can be blindfolded to the things of God, and sometimes if you go swinging hard enough, you're going to hit the jackpot and all sorts of blessings are going to come falling from the sky into your life. That's what common grace is. And as a result, all, the, all those other kids that run in for the lollies, well, whether they're believers or unbelievers, it doesn't matter. But God showers these blessings down from outside of us, even though some of us might be blindfolded to where and why they really fall from the sky. That's what common grace is. Now, through his common grace, through his common grace, the question really is, does God work through the broader reaches of society for common good? Yes. He, he, he works through beauty and kindness. Could the world be worse off? Of course. And so through common grace, God saves the world from what it could be. Let's be real. That this, this world is a better and a more beautiful place because of many non-Christians. I'd hate a world in its current format in which it was just a whole bunch of Christians hanging out together, serving each other coffee, just doing that. There are many blessings and gifts that non-believers give us that you benefit from every single day of your life. And so through his common grace, he saves the world from what it could be. Why? He saves it from what it could be so you can help him make it what it should be. He saves it from what it could be so you can help him make it what it should be. All of this series that we've been talking about here is that God uses us, his children, through work, to tend the gardens around us, to flourish the world around us, uh, to, to, to take our gifts and our abilities in the way that he has created us and use them in ways just to serve our neighbours and just to love our neighbours through our work. So if we've been learning that throughout this series, you know, how do we as Christians take our faith into the workplace? Is it the, is it, do we get the soapbox out? Do we stand up? Do we run a church service in our open plan desks? Or again, back to that question, uh, or do we just quietly work away? Which one is it? And the problem is you'll always go off balance unless you have the gravity of this concept of common grace that we've just heard about, the piñata principle. Which one is it? Here's, here's the problem. We need to have a balanced view of common, common grace. And here's why. Without a balanced view of God's common grace, the first thing that will happen is that you'll withdraw from the world. That's what happens when you diminish God's common grace. When you diminish God's common grace, you say that God really doesn't love the world around us, whether they believe in him or not. And so as a result, I call that the Amish principle. And you put on funny hats and you live in Eastern America and you create communities in which uh, only the believers live together and uh, you don't watch much television and it's best not to engage the world around you. In fact, you actively withdraw from the world around you because, here's why, just in case the world might pollute you. I kid you not. You know, ask Michael Thomas. He's watching crazy Christians on YouTube all week, right? <laughs> and in this particular clip, 
there were some of our brothers and sisters, and yes, they're our brothers and sisters, who were asking whether or not my little pony was demonic. Yes, whether or not my little pony was demonic. Uh, Included other things such as whether Pokemon was demonic. Um, here's, here's, the que- here's the question. This is, this is what happens when you diminish common grace. You look at My Little Pony and you look at Pokemon and go, Oh my goodness, they're going to pollute you. They're going to pull you away from the love of Christ, which has been enacted in your life by a super magnet that somehow brought you to faith. But somehow Pokemon is going to upset that balance for you tonight if you go and you play Pokemon this week. Um, you know, let's get practical. You withdraw from the world around you. This happens when you go to, maybe you go to youth group for the first time. And then as a result of that, you stop hanging out with all your other friends at school because they don't believe in Jesus. It happens when you're at MacUni, for example, and you become a Christian. You only hang out with the student lifers because they're the Christians on campus and that's all that you should hang out with, lest anyone else in the world pollutes your view of the truth. It means for you as a mum, where you choose to only actively go to our Bible studies rather than your community mother's group that's been assigned to you, whether it be in a Mars field or a crow's nest, because it feels more comfortable. It means that as a co-worker, you don't go out on Friday night with a crew for fear that it's not the right Christian thing to do. And even worse, heaven forbid, that someone does something on a Friday night that's going to require you to take a stand and declare what your faith is to the rest of your co-workers. See, see how you can actively withdraw from the world? If you have an unbalanced view of common grace, God loves the world, he blesses the world through everyone. And so if, the, if that's the case, we shouldn't withdraw from the world, we should engage the world. But then what happens if we go too far when we engage the world? You see, if you have an unbalanced view of common grace, then you capitulate, you give up, you just give in to the world. That's what it means to capitulate. That's what happens when you overemphasize God's common grace. When you overemphasize that, hey, God's just going to bless me anyway. And so it doesn't matter how I live and how I act in the world around me. And then, you know, that, that's when we give up being any different from the world around us. And that happens when you actually confuse common grace with saving grace. They're two different things. The saving grace, the grace by which God makes you a Christian and and brings you into his kingdom and calls you a child of his and and gives you a whole new life in the Holy Spirit that changes you and grows you to be like Jesus Christ. That's saving grace. When we confuse that with common grace, you see, saving grace, you're saved from something to something. You're saved from death and sin and that type of life to a life that is meant to go in and engage the world for God. And when you confuse, when you confuse all of that, this wise guy once said, oh, you're, you're salt and light. But if the salt loses its saltiness, you know, how can it ever be made salty? And it's useless. Throw it out. You know, and those who are light, you, know, you don't have a light and put it under a bowl. No, you let your light shine before all men so they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It was a wise-sounding guy, wasn't he? That was Jesus. <laughs> anyone need to take any notes? Yeah, Matthew 5. But you see, Jesus says, My followers are to be distinct from the world, but they're to be st- distinct for the world. And so, in other words, if you give up on that, then you're just salt that's losing its saltiness. If you just give in, in other words, if, if you privatize your faith, you know, we do that all the time. 
At those moments at the Friday night when we should be just that slightly bit different, that people are going to ask questions. If we bury that on the inside, we privatize that. No one ever gets to know that we're a Christian. And as a result, we've capitulated. And so can you see the degree to which you get common grace is the degree to which you'll effectively engage your workplace for God. <laughs> are you either going to withdraw from the world? You know, worried that my little pony is going to pollute you? Or are you going to capitulate from the world? You salt that's lost its saltiness. You privatize your faith. You give in. You just look like everyone else. That's the balance of what common grace means in our life. And so what does that look like? Because some of you are saying, well, Sam, you're a preacher. That's easy for you. You work in the church. You don't have to deal with that. You don't have to privatize your faith. Or, or James, who wrote this, he's a preacher too. It's fine for him. You know, What's that supposed to look like? How do we effectively integrate our faith and our work? And that is, how do we engage the world without withdrawing excessively? And how do we engage the world without capitulating and looking like it? Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example, just, just to show you a biblical example, uh, show you the principle, uh, though it's going to be worked out differently for all of you tonight, uh, the principle is the same for everyone. In, in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's this guy called Naaman, and he was like the military prime minister of Syria, um, uh, the region where we have Syria today. And he was a non-believer, but he was also a leper. Uh, Aleppo had all sorts of sores over him. And so when he hears about this great prophet, Elijah, he sends off some of his men to go and ask if there's anything that Elijah can do for him. And Elijah says, go down to the river, bathe in the river. He goes down there and he comes out and he says he was spotless like a little boy. And he was healed. And, and so as a result, he, he says now to Elijah, he says, now I know there is no God in, except in Israel. In other words, he's converted. He's converted. And then what happens? What's he going to do? You know, he's discovered that, the, that there's a one true God and he has received healing both on the inside and on the outside. He's, he's become a believer in this God. There are two things that Naaman doesn't do. The, the first thing he doesn't do is say, look, Elisha, let me stay here. There's nothing but dirty pagans back there. They're, they're all unbelievers. They're all idolaters. You know, do you know what my job is as the military prime minister? I've got to go, I've got to go in with the, with the king of Syria. And I've got, to, I've got to go with him on my arm and I have to go to the temple of Rimon. And there the king bows down and I bow down to this God. And I can't do anything like that. I can't set foot in the temple anymore. I, I know the true God. Therefore, I just, can I stay here with believers? Now, does, he doesn't do that. Nor on the other side, he doesn't say, you know what, no problem. I've got my healing. God's touched me. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now I'll just go back to work and do what I've got to do. And that's just a me thing. It's a private thing. He, he, he doesn't go back saying, oh, look, you know, there's no reason to rock the boat. I don't want to rock the boat here. He doesn't do that either. You know what he does? You see, here's he, he's what he doesn't do. He neither avoids his culture, nor does he capitulate to his culture. He neither, neither runs away from his culture, nor does he privatize his faith. You know what he says? He says, this, there's something that I think both believers and, and, and non-believers are shocked at when they hear it. This is, this is, this is amazing what he says here. You know, this, this is just out there. He says to Elisha, 2 Kings 5.17, he says, uh, if you'll not take anything from me, Elisha, so he wants to give back, give, give Elisha a couple of bucks uh, for healing him. And, and Elisha says, no way. He says, please let me, your servant, uh, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant. Uh, and, and for your servant will never again make burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God but the Lord your God. But may the Lord forgive 
your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And I, I love this because this is so crazy that this proves that you, you probably can't apply, apply this this week. You know what he does? You, you wouldn't dare copy it. He goes and gets some dirt. He goes and gets some dirt and, and the, from those mules in Israel. And so whenever he goes to bow down in the temple of Rimon, he spreads all this dirt from Israel on the ground. So when he puts his knee on the ground, he says, I bow before my God in Israel. He's, he, he's, he says, oh, I'm going to do my job. I'm the prime minister. That's part of my job. But when I go in there, I'm going to have some dirt from Israel and my servants are going to spread it everywhere. And I'm going to kneel down so that everyone who sees knows that I'm sacrificing not to Rimon, but to the God of Israel. Now, someone will say, oh, that's just superstitious. <laughs> that's just superstitious. No, no, it's not superstitious. It's a witness. It's a symbol. Can you see that? here's what he's saying, I'll do my job, but I'm going to let everyone know that this is my way of showing people. People here are going to ask me about it, and I'm going to tell them that I don't serve the way that I used to serve. I don't worship the way I used to worship. Everything I'm doing is in honor of the one true God of Israel. Everything I do. Now it affects his work. That affected his work, and that's thousands of years ago. And it should affect our work, you see, because here's the principle. He neither privatized his faith nor did he run away, nor did he stay away. He doesn't run from the culture, nor does he capitulate to the culture. He integrates his faith into his work. Now, someone's going to say here tonight, nobody's going to do that. I'm not throwing dirt on the carpet tomorrow. <laughs> and of course, you shouldn't throw dirt on the carpet tomorrow. That's not what I'm asking you to do. Of course, you're not going to do that. That was Naaman's outworking of faith and work. But here's the thing. You're going to have to work it out for yourself. I, I don't know why people say, you know, you Christians, you've always got all these simple answers to life. You know, the Bible doesn't have simple answers. It's just got simple principles like the Naaman principle or like the Pinata principle. It's got, it's got, it doesn't have simple answers. It has simple principles that are very difficult to apply. And so don't you feel it that if you're, if you're taking the Bible seriously then you shouldn't be walking out of here in 10 minutes saying, you know what, I'm just going to follow the three-step process that Stan told me to do tonight about my work. Because <laughs> you know what that is? That's a simple answer. <laughs> Each and every one of us, like we've been processing over the past three or four weeks, come from vast different fields. There are actresses, there are accountants. There are lawyers, there are landscapers. <laughs> there are violin players, there are the bean counters. <laughs> There are doctors. There are all sorts of different fields that from the same principle of integrating your faith are going to have totally different outworkings. And so instead you should be saying tonight, oh wow, I see what I need to do in light of all this framework that I'm building now. We're week four into the series. I'm getting a framework here that yeah, works a good thing and sin comes into it and then there's, there's the hope of the gospel and now, yeah, common grace and it should be a balanced approach. See, see how we're trying to talk frameworks for your work. So that you tonight can say, I've got to work it out. I've got to get creative. I've got to apply some wisdom. I've got to ask the Holy Spirit for some help. I, I, this could take the rest of my life to do this, but that's what it means to integrate your faith into your work. So I'm sorry if I disappointed you. If we thought that there would be a simple answer coming out of the message tonight to say, how do we integrate our 
faith and our work. No, it's up to you to work that out. It's up to you to go into your work and to engage it without withdrawing and without capitulating this week. And so as I finish up, look, really, there's just two types of people, I think, in any service that we have like this tonight. There, there of course, are the Naamans. They're the people that have, have, have encountered the one true living God, that have felt his power both on the inside and the outside and have a response to his grace that say, I just, I just want to give back. I just, I, I, I just want to praise him. Let, let me do something. And then, and then as a name, and it's now your job to go and work out where you're going to spread your little patch of dirt. In other words, you've got to work out tonight what that patch of dirt represents for you. What thing for you will be a distinctive for you to say, I will not run away from my culture, nor will I become part of my culture. But there's always, always in a service like this, another type of person. And they're the, they're the princes and the princesses of the piñata. They're the, they're the ones who, who maybe tonight for the first time you're recognizing that there are good things in your life. And those good things are dropping from the sky like lollies. And if you think hard enough, my question for you is, maybe you're asking yourself that question, where do they come from? Why, why is the world around me so beautiful at times? Why do I hear that piece of music and get transported to another plane? Why do I feel like that? And it's because by his mercy, it's possible to be blind to the things of God and still hit the jackpot. You know? My question for you tonight, are you, are you willing to open your eyes to him? Are you willing to just, 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 just acknowledge that the beauty and the wisdom and the wonder and the blessings and the justice in the world around you might be little more than a coincidence. Because at Northside, like we sang in that wonderful song, you know, th there's, a, there's a universal piñata. There was an ultimate piñata. Not a paper lash, mache lamb. But, but the very lamb of God, the way the Bible puts it, that it says in, in, in 2 Samuel 4, around there where the prophet Nathaniel prophesies to David and says that there will be one after him who will create a kingdom that will last forever. And, 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 it said, and it said through his voice, I will be his father and he will be my son and through my rod he will receive the punishment of all men. You know what that was getting at? At the, at the cross, Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was the universal piñata. That is, he suffered blow by blow by blow, the rod of God upon him. It busted him open in what can sound like the most glorious of ways. But, but as he was broken open for us, all sorts of blessings from heaven began to fall. You can be a child of God. You can have meaning. That You can have unconditional love that, that that you can be an heir to a kingdom that would blow your mind all of these things fall on the ground if only you would pick them up and receive it are, are, are you willing to are you willing if you're a prince or a princess of the piñata tonight recognize that there is there's a blindfold that you might need to open your eyes to the work of god through jesus christ tonight if you if you're willing to acknowledge that come and talk to us after the service it's the first step to being a christian but here's what it is look we learnt tonight the balance, the tightrope that we work, walk, is that God saves the world from what it could be. Let's be real, guys. Let's be a balanced church. 
There are lots of wonderful non-Christians in our lives. Let's not be a crazy Christian. Let's recognize that there are so many wonderful unbelievers out there that are blessing us every day and the good things are the God things. And so to be a Christian is to recognize that the world could be a heck of a lot worse. And if it weren't for his common grace, that is that God can and he will and he does pour out his blessings through all people's work. And the degree to which you get that, the degree to which you get his common grace will be the degree to not only recognizing that the world could be worse than it could be, but you participate in helping God make it the way that it should be. A balanced view of God's common grace means you won't withdraw because the world's not your enemy. The people aren't there aren't inherently bad people that are trying to pollute us. The God's lost lottery tickets. There are his precious kids that are yet to walk into his kingdom. But more importantly, we don't capitulate. We don't privatize our faith when we walk into work or school or university tomorrow. To walk the tightrope between withdrawing from the world or integrating into the world or capitulating into the world requires the the weighty the weightiness of his common grace do you do you get that is is it the first time you've heard that tonight it's it's for you to work out how you apply all of this this week as you move into your work and seek to integrate your faith with your work this week let's pray